Matthew 13, 44 to 46. Beginning of a new year, our souls need tending, so let's tend them by listening to Jesus. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. So here we're in a section that's dealing with Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is salvation. The kingdom of God is what a living and awake and active soul desires more than anything. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. He's showing that it's analogous to somebody who's maybe out plowing and not like America where, you know, a lot of farmland was first or generation being turned over prairie after being burned for centuries. But this is a place where people had lived for thousands of years. And so if you were out plowing, you could come on treasure. And it's been the habit across history for people not to have safe deposit boxes, but to have dirt and to hide their treasure in the dirt. And so Jesus was just referring to a a normal occurrence, which was that somebody might be plowing, and all of a sudden they might come on a treasure that had been abandoned to the soil maybe centuries earlier. Are you with me? And all of a sudden they discover it. When I was down visiting some missionaries in Mexico with my dad years ago, there were some irrigation ditches that were probably about three feet wide and about six feet deep or five feet deep. And so I hopped down in them. That was before I was thick around the middle. And then I started walking up and down. They were dry at that time. And as I walked, I saw down in the soil, pottery and obsidian. And I got excited. I began to dig into the wall and I came home with a bunch of very, very old pottery and old knives that were made of obsidian. And this was before the time when you had to declare such things in customs or I was too stupid to know it. And they were probably two or three feet down in the soil. So you can imagine how old they were, right? And so here a man is maybe out plowing, maybe digging, maybe uh, laying the foundation for a house. But the point is, he's not looking for anything. He's simply doing his work, and all of a sudden, he comes on a great treasure. It says, a treasure hidden in the field which a man found. Then it says that he hid it again. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that parables are a joke with a punchline. And my point was to say that you don't go looking to make every single word of a parable have application spiritually. What you want to do is get the point of the joke. Don't people drive you crazy who want you to explain every part of a joke? It's like, listen to the punchline, please. So the punchline here is what? It's the zeal and single-mindedness of the pursuit of the kingdom of heaven, of the godly. That those who know the the, the unbelievable value of their souls will do anything to get the kingdom of heaven. And the analogy that's being used by Jesus in a parable is somebody that discovers a great treasure, 
when they're plowing or, or, or building or doing something. And so what do they do? Well, they hide, the, they hide the treasure. And so somebody, nasty, 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 finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Is that what we're supposed to be taught by Jesus? You know, he shouldn't have hid the treasure. He should have gone to the owner of the land and said, listen, your land has much more valuable than, than you'd ever, ever, here's what I found in your property. And, and so now I want to buy the property, from, but I can't pay a fair price unless you know the value of and wouldn't that be the perfect way for a highly educated reform person to miss the point? Jesus says what? Jesus says he found it and hid it again and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I think it's sweet that verses 44 and 45 are opposite in one way. Both are a great treasure. One is not defined what the treasure is. The other, it's a pearl of great value. But did you notice that when the great treasure, the hidden treasure is found, that the man was not looking? But, verse 45, the merchant was seeking fine pearls. And so what we see in the church is always a combination of those who are just living, minding their own business. And God, bam. And then others who are described in the book of Hebrews where it says that he that would come to God must believe and what must believe that he is a rewarder, do you remember what it says, of those who diligently seek him. And so Jesus, even in describing the kingdom of God, describes the two separate ways that people are brought to see the kingdom of heaven. One is just minding his own business. The other is diligently seeking it. Both of them, though, have the same response. Both of them respond by making absolutely everything in their lives negotiable, subordinate, subject to the kingdom of heaven. All right? Did you notice the first guy, it says, sells all that he has and buys that field. And the second guy, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And that's the punchline. The punchline is, what will a man give for his immortal soul? Remember, Jesus said that. And so both of them see the kingdom of God. They discover it. Can you imagine how easy it would be to live today without having any knowledge of the kingdom of God? Have you ever thought about that? You could go through life thinking movies were true. I pity the poor people that live in other nations and watch American movies because they think that's who we are. And sadly, it is who we are becoming. We follow and become our idols, don't we? You notice that? I was horrified recently to think of what I had just watched in a television show. And something I think my brother had written woke me up and I thought, I can't watch that. And so it's very easy 
to drug yourself. It's very easy to buy yourself. It's very easy to eat yourself. It's very easy to live yourself into a steady state that is entirely devoid of the kingdom of God. And it's very easy to go to church every Sunday, and even a conservative church, and to have absolutely no commitment to awareness of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, it's very easy to listen to WMBI and to live in Wheaton and to be a professor at Wheaton College and to have no knowledge of the kingdom of God. It's very easy to be a religious leader, to be a pastor, and have no knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. And you stop and you think about the things that you would sell to purchase the pearl of great price. And the way to think about it is to realize in both cases, the one that was just minding his own business, and the kingdom of heaven was revealed to him, and the one who was searching desperately, and the kingdom of heaven... Both of them sold all they had. So then you go back and you think, okay, the guy that was just plowing the field and discovered it, and the guy that was searching, that this was his job. Both of these men, what did they sell for the, for the kingdom of heaven to purchase it? What did they sell? Well, we don't know the details, but we do know your details. We do know your details coming just back from family vacations. We know one of the details, right? What defines Christmas for all of us? What defines Christmas is to see that we have to make a choice between our families and Jesus Christ. (laughs) And you're wondering why I'm laughing. I don't know. (laughs) But it's just so painfully obvious you feel the pressure that your children and your parents and your brothers and sisters and your friends put on you to despise Jesus Christ, to make a mockery of what is holy. I'll bet every single person here has thought about this in the last two weeks. What did you think Jesus meant when he said that the man that would follow him has to hate his father, his mother, his brother, his sister, his son, his daughter. Did you think that Jesus is opposed to family values? No. (laughs) He's not opposed to family values. He says that he hates divorce. He says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus is not opposed to family values. But Jesus is opposed to anything or anyone ever usurping the place of the kingdom of God. The only way you can have a husband or wife or a son or a daughter without turning them into idols is if the kingdom of heaven is so far above them in your commitments that they're just like down on the ground and tiny. And if you're a mother and you hear me say this, you think I've turned into a monster, but I haven't. You mothers especially need to learn this. The only way you will keep from ruining your children is to hate them. 
And then God will give them back to you and you'll love them. But you'll love them knowing that as my father used to say, every child is on loan from God and God can call that loan in anytime he pleases. And when he calls your loans in, your little ones, their lives are complete because he has said they're complete. So if you begin to love your children knowing your children will die, knowing that from the moment of conception they began dying, knowing that death is the end of all men since the fall, knowing that God is sovereign over your children's sickness and death, then you can begin to love your children the way you ought. So hear me, mothers. Don't turn your children into idols. How many elders, I speak to you now, how many couples in this church have had mothers who their husbands didn't discipline them and they turned their children into idols and they destroyed the lives of their children. It's one of the most common scenarios that we see in conservative reform churches in this country where we think that what God's really about is family values because, of course, that goes perfectly with republicanism, right? Family values, you know, the elder and the younger bush you know, riding the little cart out onto the World Series field. Remember that? And that's Christianity. And so remember how it says that in William Law's A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, he says many men have spoken of the obligation they have to provide for their family and have become idolaters but said that God says that the man that doesn't provide for his own is worse than a pagan. And so mothers can despise the kingdom of God claiming to be good mothers. Husbands can despise the kingdom of God claiming to be good providers. Right? What is it that you, you, would sell for the treasure, for the pearl? What would it be? Would it be good vibes at your family Christmas time? Are you willing to give that up for your soul? What about your girlfriend? Are you willing to give up your soul for the sake of a woman to love you, of a man that will live with you? Is that the price? Is that how cheap you are? How about your car? How about your house? How about your reputation among friends as being a go-along-to-get-along guy? Nobody ever takes offense at you. You're just the perfect crease that every relationship needs. How about your bank account, your pension fund? How about your cello? You're willing to sell your cello for the kingdom of God? 
You know, I think often the musicians are the leaders of this church spiritually. I wrote a blog post about it this morning. You know why I think musicians lead us spiritually? Not just because of the power of music, but I think musicians lead us spiritually because musicians are perfectly tuned to the vanity of the pursuit of excellence. I remember the time that a certain blonde in our church came to me and told me she was going to give up singing. And I asked her why, and she said, because everything about singing is self-promotion, and I can't stand it anymore. And so if you think about musicians in our church, often they're the most disciplined and the most serious people in our church. They work harder than any of us do. But their work is always aimed at self-glorification. And even if that's not their aim, that's what they get. (laughs) You know? And so if they're going to follow Christ, they hit this issue right away. Do you understand? Because right away, they know that they have to put it in the fire. That's why I'm happy to say your cello to Cole. Because from the time Cole came to this church, I saw that he was willing to put his cello in the fire. Right? Did we all observe this? It was so clear. And you just think, thank God, he sent us another one. And now I'll stand on his shoulders as I preach. What what is it that God calls you to put in the fire with coal? You remember in Ephesus, you remember they put their magic books. You willing to be a book burner at IU? I mean, boy, that's a horrible thought, isn't it? Did you hear about that church on the west side? (laughs) Can't you imagine the press we'd get? Start burning Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre. But I don't think we should do that because I don't think they're worth that. Who who should we burn, Josh? Uh, Wait, no, this isn't Josh. I'm sorry, this is being recorded. This is Samuel. Samuel, who should we burn? Have you ever thought about that? You ever read that account in Acts? Hmm. What should you burn? And you say, well, that's not what the text says. It says sold. I said, okay. All right, what should you sell? Do you remember why you sell it? You sell it so that you can purchase the kingdom of God. And so whatever it is you sell to purchase the kingdom of God, you do not possess it after you sell it, right? Are we agreed on that? And even the money you got for selling it, you don't have anymore because you used the money to purchase the kingdom of God. Right? So in other words, what do you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit calling you to forsake for the kingdom of God? You say, well, not my mother. She's godly. I say, okay, I'm with you, John. Okay, so what? Well, not my father because, well, to tell you the truth, I'd be happy to be done with him. 
I say, okay, not your mother, not your father. What? Well, not my job, because this church wouldn't be able to survive without my job. And I say, okay, fine, not your job. Not my car, because I loan it out. Not my house, because we have small groups meet in our house. Not my cello, because I use it to lead worship. Do you remember what Jesus said? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Isn't that interesting that Jesus says that his motivation was joy? Does it sound joyful when I go through the things that we could sell and and I come up with all the reasons why we should not sell that particular thing, you know? It doesn't sound like I'm motivated by joy, does it? Why would that man have joy? Well, remember that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And the reason he would have joy is because he has been brought to the end of himself where he sees, perfectly sees his sin. Where the preaching of the word of God has brought him to the point where he knows there's no hope for himself. And so he despairs. There is absolutely no way of having the joy to sell everything we have for the kingdom of God. There's no way to get to that joy without passing through despair. Do you understand that? And that's the reason Christian radio stations only have crescendos today. Because they're, they're, they're ministering to people who have never repented. Who have never despaired over themselves. Who, who have become convinced that to be Republican is to be a Christian. As long as you have family values and, 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 and don't personally marry a member of the same sex. Do you understand how cheap our Christianity has become today? The only way to have the joy that motivates you to be thoughtless in the dispensing of your treasures is if you have been brought to the point where you see your sin in all its horror exactly the way it is and you see the holiness of God in all its glory precisely as it is. And then the chasm between you and God is absolutely clear. And you know there's no way for you to bridge the chasm. And then you see Jesus high and lifted up. You see the cross turning his father's wrath away from you. And knowing who you are, knowing his holiness, and seeing Jesus high and lifted up. All of a sudden, you have joy. You know what I think is one of the most powerful uh, songs that I've ever sung? (laughs) is a pathetic song. It's just so 
humble and trite and simple. But I can't tell you how often I've sung it to myself. And the song is, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You know that little ditty? You don't know it. Well, I don't think I'm going to get Jody to ever sing it up here. (laughs) Huh? Oh, did he actually do it once? Okay. It's, it's really disgusting. But boy, what a beautiful song. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And so, let me read to you what has been the universal testimony of our fathers and mothers in the faith across Christian history. They have all spoken of finding the pearl of great price this way. This is John Owen. He says, I had been searching. I had been searching up and down. I looked this way and that for help, but it was far away. I spent my strength for that which was not bread. And yet, here is something that makes me rich forever. He says, when the righteousness of Jesus Christ is first revealed as the basis to be accepted by God. When this is revealed to a poor laboring soul that has fought for rest and has found none, he is surprised and amazed and is not able to contain himself. And such a one always in his heart approves his righteousness on a twofold account. In what darkness, says such a one, in what straits, in what entanglements was my poor soul? How little able was I to look through the clouds and perplexities wherewith I was encompassed, surrounded by. I looked inwards and there was nothing but sin, horror, fear, tremblings. I looked upwards and I saw nothing but wrath, curses, and vengeance. I knew that God was a holy and righteous God and that no unclean thing could abide before him. I knew that I was a poor, vile, unclean, and sinful creature. And how to bring these two together in peace, I knew not. But in the righteousness of Christ does a world of wisdom open itself, getting rid of every difficulty and all darkness, and showing us the reconciliation that God intended. And then what does he do? Well, he exclaims in the words of Scripture. He says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You know, if you read Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' account of coming to faith, you find the same words, almost identical. This is the story of every person who possesses the kingdom of God. It's impossible to possess the kingdom of God without coming to a biblical understanding of my sin. Do you remember my story about the young alcoholic that started coming to church up in Wisconsin? Do you remember this story? 
he was a rotter, and everybody tells me, I don't know what a rotter is, and I say, well, I don't know what the word is today, but that's the word I was raised on. He was a perfect rotter, which means rotten to the core. He was really rotten. He was a man that was known in the community to, to go home with a different woman every night, and he had a wife who was faithful to him, and he had like five, six children. And he started coming to church, and boy, you know, you'd think the church was going to cave in on him. You know, everybody was just scandalized. That's the bad thing about small towns, is nobody can ever change. Did you know that in small towns? Nobody can ever change. And of course, the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything. And so this guy started coming to church, and it was a real attitude adjustment for, for every, all of us, you know? And he kept coming. You know, he'd, he'd go to a different home Saturday night than his wife, but he'd come to church with his family in the morning. And after a few weeks of him being there, he called me one day, and he said, Tim, he said, I'd like you to pray for me. Now, this was not all he said, but this is the important thing. Actually, before he said this, he talked a long time about his father and his relationship with his father and his bitterness. And then he said, Tim, I'd like you to pray for me. He said, I want you to pray that I stop drinking. And of course, one of the things was he was an alky. And I said to him, I said, why do you want me to pray that you'll stop drinking? And he said, well, because it's, it's bad. And I said, I know it's bad, but why do you want me to pray that you'll stop drinking? And I said this to him. I said, I will not pray that you stop drinking. Because I said, if you stop drinking, what will happen is you will then be just as respectable as other, every other pagan in this small town. You will no longer have the shame of being known as an alky. And I said, what I will do is I'll pray for you that God above will reveal himself to you and that you will repent and believe. Now, of course, I would pray that he'd stop drinking, but you understand, think of how many respectable men there are in this world who have absolutely no faith. Why would we want to clean a man up so that he could be as proud as I am? You, you, you understand my point. What we need is not to be a better moralist than our next door neighbor. What we need is to be a humble servant of the kingdom of God. That's what the world needs. The world doesn't need more moralists. The world already has so many rules. I mean, you can't... You can't, you can't do anything without breaking laws today. I get up in the morning and they arrest me because I have bad breath. I say, well, let me go brush my teeth. They say, no, no, that would be fluoride in the water. And you have a Presby system. We made you buy that Presby system. <laughs> Everything in this life is just like moralism. And then Christians come along and say, well, and not only that, but did you ever realize da 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 you know? And these people are without hope in this world. And what we can do is we can hold out to them the mercy of God to sinners.
But you can't hold out the mercy of God to sinners if you've spent your life trying not to look in the face of your own heart. And so, it is absolutely impossible for any man to sell everything he has to get the pearl of great price if he doesn't see that he's bankrupt. He has to be poor in order to sell everything he has to get the treasure. He has to be broken. He has to be under conviction of sin. He has to despair of himself. And he cannot believe what Rita Cuffey says to him about what he is like. Some of you remember Rita Cuffey, and I used to tell Rita, I said, you know, Rita, one of your worst sins is that you don't think I sin. Think of how many men go through their lives believing the stupidity of their mothers. (laughs) What a pathetic thing to depend for eternity on what your mother thinks of you. (laughs) It's like, whoa, Houston, we have a problem. My dad used to refer disparagingly to all the Christian biographies that are, and he said, written by fond mothers-in-law. He referred to them as fond mother-in-law's biography, like, for instance, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Any of you ever heard of that book? Fond mother-in-law biography. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, did you hear the list? Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who has first place in your life? Who? Who? Listen, some of you, what has first place in your life is your brokenness because of the failure of your mother and your father. Do you hear me? In other words, we just assume that what you need to do is not worship your father and mother. And as long as you don't worship your father and mother, then this this isn't speaking to you. But what about those people who go through their entire lives circulating around the theme of them being victims and of them having had an awful father and an awful mother. Do you realize how that's a bondage just as much as the bondage of believing the press of your mother, what she thinks of you? Let's say you had a good mother and you go through your life depending upon the reputation of your good mother. Or let's say you had a bad, you go through your life mourning your bad mother. No, 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 no. Bad mother, good mother, away from you. Away from you. Turn your backs on them and come to God. Because he is a perfect father. He does not abuse you. He is not fickle. He is not a drunk. He's not proud. He's simply jealous for his glory. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish All who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Luke 14, 26 to 33. What do you live for? You live for your wife, your children. What do you live for? Do you live for the kingdom of heaven? And you say yes. And then I say, what's the proof? And you say, the blood of Jesus Christ. And I say, that's, that's a good answer. But I'm asking you, what is the proof in your life? Remember how all of us agreed that we saw, we saw Cole put his cello on the fire. Do you remember that? It was clear that the cello was subordinate to the kingdom of God when Cole came among us. Do you remember that? And so what does your life say to those watching about where the kingdom of God is in your life? And not a long time ago, today. Aren't you tired of those who only are able to tell you their testimony from 55 years ago? Well, I got involved with navigators. It's like, dude, get a life. (laughs) What is true of you today with the kingdom of God? I want to close with a, a true story. But first I want to read a scripture. This sermon I preached in 1998, April 19th here in Bloomington. It was right after a number of us left another church in town that had been unfaithful in its elders board. And so we left and a number of people came. One of the people that came was a man who was uh, a splendid man. Do you know what I mean? A, A splendid specimen of manhood. You know what I mean? We don't have any here now, but at that time we had one, only one. I was so jealous of that man. He was, you know, like Saul, he stood head and shoulders above other men. And handsome to boot. And he was from good stock. His father and mother were missionaries planting churches in Austria. And did I say he was handsome? Did I mention that? He was handsome. And he knew like, like, Yiddish and Italian and German and English and I don't know 
all those languages. Spoke them fluently. And he knew art. He could have taken a second PhD in, in art history. And he knew music, and, and he was musical. And every woman that came into the church got mad at me because he didn't ask her out on a date because he was my friend and I was expected to. And when he preached, he preached a sermon that I just was sickened that I was not able to preach that well. It was so bad that I, that I, that I got angry in the meeting afterwards and I said to him, how is it that I'm the one that preaches every Sunday and you never preach and yet look at the gifts God has given you? I was so angry. This is true. Some of you, well, was anybody here in that meeting? Wayne Hook was in it in the first service. This man had been getting a doctorate in English literature here. He'd finished all his coursework and... Back then, I think it was probably around this time in 98, he was down at the laundromat in uh, the East uh, Eastland Plaza, you know, there by the pet store, that laundromat. And he was doing his laundry, and he called me on the phone, and he said, Tim, he said, God has spoken to me. God has said that only one thing is necessary. And he said, so I'm going to quit my Ph.D. program, and I'm going to go over to Germany. And I'm going to go be a house father to the young boys at the Black Forest Academy. Do you know what text he'd read there in the laundromat as he waited for his clothes to dry? This one. Luke 10. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. This is Jesus. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. So he was reading that, and his clothes were drying, and he called me up and he said, I'm going to go back to Black Forest Academy, and I'm going to be a house father to those fatherless young men. And so um, Tim Wagner is an elder at this church, and he was here in the first service, and he looked at me and he said, yeah, he was our first member. And I said, really? I didn't remember that. He said, yeah, he was our first member because his mission wouldn't let him go under them unless he was a member of a church. So we set up membership so that Steve Berenzi could be our first missionary. I didn't remember that. And so he went out. We supported him, I think, 500 a month. Big step for this little fledgling church. And he went over there, and he didn't go over to be a muckety-muck teacher, you know, English and all the finer things of life. He went over there simply to be a father to the high school men. Because he remembered being sent off to that school as a high schooler and having no man be a father to him and not having his father close by. So he went over there and he began to lead those young guys in Bible studies. He began to teach them the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I remember him writing me and saying, you know, it's very hard to feel glamorous about what I've chosen to do when my life consists of doing young men's dirty laundry.
It's not very glamorous. My wife refuses to do it for Taylor. And Steve was over there, and he slept with them, and he ate with them, and he did their dirty laundry. And that's the kingdom of God. Only one thing is necessary. That was the defining statement that he used to explain his decision and what he did for the next several years. When he came back here, he decided to complete his degree. When he came back, IU would not allow him to complete his degree. I couldn't figure it out. Now, I could explain it, but the long and the short of it is they would not allow him to complete his doctorate. So I asked Stephen to bring me his, his transcript so I could see whether he was a, you know, whether maybe there was a part of Stephen, a side of him I'd never known, you know. Uh-uh, straight A's. So he got an opportunity to teach at Columbia Bible College, which is now uh, grown and is calling itself Columbia International University. And uh, down there, his first faculty, and maybe it was his second faculty meeting, the president, who had brought Steve there because the president knew Steve and knew he was, he, he was a prince among men, uh, the president announced, or somebody under the president, announced they were going to bring in a woman dean over the whole school, including the seminary academic dean. And so Stephen stood up and said, this seems to me to be contrary to 1 Timothy 2, especially when there's a seminary under her jurisdiction. Well, that didn't suit, sit real well with the faculty, you know. Then he went away on a retreat, and his church, they announced that to the men's retreat that the church had decided that they were going to have 25% of their Sunday school, adult Sunday school classes taught by women from then on. And so Stephen stood up and said, where does the Apostle Paul say 25% of the adult education classes should be taught by women? <laughs> Come on, laugh. It was just absurd. And of course, that didn't sit real well with the people at the church. And here Stephen was without his doctorate. And so what did he do? Basically, he started all over again at University of South Carolina. And so you look at me and you say, well, what's your point? And I say, well, here's my point. Do you know that that godly man still doesn't have a PhD? And do you know that I love him? And I'll bet right now you love him, don't you? Those of you that love the kingdom of God love men who put themselves under the kingdom of God. Those who only one thing is necessary, right? Now, I will have to be honest and tell you that I think the reason that Stephen doesn't have a doctorate now is not that he didn't complete his coursework with honors. I'm sure he got straight A's at USC, right? I think it's because Stephen has not been able to finish his dissertation. And I think if he listened to this sermon, he would be shamed and embarrassed to hear me talking about this. But you know, I'm convinced that that is his glory. I'm convinced that almost always the time of God's perfect love for me is the time when he refuses to give me the idols of my heart. You know what I'm talking about, right? And can't you see how a PhD could be, huh, huh? 
an idol. I'm sorry, I've gotten you guys mixed up, I just realized, because there's coal. <laughs> but don't worry, I'll get you right someday. It took me like 10 years with Anthony and Curtis. So there's hope. You stick around for 10 years. Okay, so here's Stephen. And Stephen, what he considers his failure, are you all with me that maybe this is God's protection? Are you with me? Are you with me that maybe him being yanked out of the PhD program here, right as he was about to start his dissertation, was God's protection? Protecting him from what? Protecting him with anything taking the place of the pearl of great price. Do you see how God is so kind that God puts joy in our hearts or maybe obsessive compulsive behavior and perfectionism such that no treasure becomes possessed by us that gets in between us and the kingdom of God. Think of how good a soccer player you may have been. And then God did what? Think of whom you may have married. Think of what would have happened to you if God had given you the desire of your heart that you could never have sold for the pearl of great price. Huh? Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And so look, if there's something in your life you're not willing to sell for the kingdom of heaven, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And you say to me, what should I do about it? And I say, what you should do about it is to seek joy. Don't get all rigid and like tight, waddish, scroogish. Don't think that you can kill the idols of your heart by being self-disciplined. You can't. The way to do it is to look to the cross and to the glory of not yourself, but Jesus Christ. And then when you see that his moment of greatest glory is when he's on the cross, naked and dying, then you get a clue, and then you won't love your wife or your girlfriend as an idol. You won't think your children are perfect. The only thing perfect is Jesus. And that is conversion. That's conversion. That is Christian faith. That is what scripture means when it commands us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you believe? You say, well, I haven't sold everything. And I say, well, Jesus commanded it. And you say, well, what does that mean? Is, is it net or gross? And I say, you don't, you don't got no joy yet, do you? You haven't caught in a vision of one thing being necessary, have you? You s- <laughs> okay. 